0: Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code PseudoArcheology at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code PseudoArcheology at liquidiv.com. You're listening to the Archeology span Podcast Network. You are now entering... The Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of pseudo archaeology. Hello, and welcome to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, episode 111. Tonight, I answer my listeners' mail. And I take a deep dive into the dating of the Sphinx. So here we are. And I know that you're shocked and maybe appalled that I would lower myself, that I would dirty myself by answering the emails and messages and missives of my audience. But I decided to, you know, hey, what am I going to do? It's a slow Thursday, but I don't got too much going on. So you know what? I am going to do this. It does take it does take a lot of bravery on my part. So I'm going to center my chi. Okay, here we go. First, I'd like to say thank you for everyone for writing me a bunch of nice stuff. Like it really does help. My little domain here at the pseudo archaeology podcast. When I hear from you guys, even when it's negative, actually, it's fine. I like hearing from you. So I've gotten emails from you guys, I've gotten other little notes in other places, you know, even on my YouTube channel sometimes. I don't mind. I I really enjoy it. So, you know, if you just feel the need to say something positive to me, I am all ears. <laughs> and I will say, in honesty, that the great percentage of feedback I've gotten from listeners has been really positive. And I would just really like to say thank you for that. It really does help me out and make me feel good. But not all of you were so giving. Oh, no. But we'll get to that. No, you know what? We'll get to that right now. I was about to do one of the other positive ones, but no, 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 no. Let's just go. Let's go down into the muck. So. I did get one negative missive from one of you out there. Oh, you know who you are. And this was actually on my show. I believe it was episode 109. It was the one on guitar tone woods. Now, in terms of being fully honest with you guys, I knew this one would ruffle some feathers. Now. Guitar Tone Woods is, of course, something that I'm not going to do on here every day. We're the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, but it just happened to be something that I was experiencing in my life. And I just felt like, man, enough is enough. I got to talk about all the pseudoscience and odd belief systems that happen in the guitar world. So I did my show. You guys can go check it out. It's all about the idea that the wood that you use for a solid body electric guitar, right? We're talking like a Stratocaster, a Telecaster, this kind of stuff. That the wood makes a difference in the sound. And my conclusion was, of course it doesn't. Or, you know what, I'll even give you this, that it is so small as to be not making any difference at all. Right. And I completely, utterly, 100 percent stand by that because science is a good thing. Anyway, I got a note from one of my many listeners and he thought that that was wrong. No, that's fine. And he actually did say that he thought that the wood that you use would maybe improve sustain more than tone right i was talking about the tone of guitar but he says that les paul who there's a les paul guitar but it was made by a person named les paul demonstrated conclusively in the 1950s that the material affects sustain i'm just gonna come back with no he didn't he's doing that in the 1950s we have much better tools today to measure stuff like that and Definitely watch the YouTube video that I attached to my podcast, which shows a very recent person doing these experiments, which show really none of this wood nonsense makes any difference at all. So he says, you know, oh, but the wood might affect sustain. No, it doesn't. Again, not to the degree that it matters at all. And you see, what we all have is magical thinking. And one of the reasons I did that guitar thing is because i wanted to show you that magical thinking isn't just in the world of archaeology right we have this in other worlds where we can uh, on one side we'll laugh about something in archaeology oh ancient aliens that's so crazy now let me get back to whatever wood my guitar is made of because that makes the difference in the sound you know which it, again it doesn't again we're talking about electric guitars electric acoustic is a different thing but <laughs> You know, this listener ends with uh, a, a sentence where he says, I regret that this show, which I have enjoyed now, has greatly reduced credibility with me due to displayed ignorance and lack of due diligence and careless use of the English language. Well, I am shocked and appalled. But I'll get over it. So anyway, even if you're super angry at me, that's okay. You know what I actually do? appreciate is although I utterly absolutely disagree with this person that he did write a paragraph or two and kind of explain that you know in the 1950s Les Paul the person did it did show some sustain using different kinds of woods and you know this kind of thing like he explained why he didn't like that show and I totally appreciate that like that's okay again I can disagree 100% with this but that's okay he had his side and he explained it that's much better than the Hey, Kinkela, you suck once. <laughs> so even though I disagree, hey, man, I do appreciate it. Now, the other one that I'm really going to focus on for for the rest of this show or big part of it, I got an email from another listener who was really curious about the Sphinx. Right. I did a show, I think it was the last one, maybe 110, about the erosion hypothesis in terms of dating the Sphinx and how foolish and silly that is and has nothing to do with real science. And that's another one that I totally, utterly, 100% stand behind because science is a good thing. But the listener didn't have a problem with that. He was actually really curious about the intricacies of the dating itself. Whether it be about erosion, whether it be about carbon 14, like he was basically saying, hey, Kinkella, yeah, I see that you say that the erosion hypothesis doesn't really work. Well, what does work? How do you date the Sphinx, right? Specifically, right? Is this erosion thing? Does it hold any merit? Is it completely worthless? You know, uh, please explain how you modern archaeology dates the Sphinx and i thought that was a great point because i hadn't really talked about that sure we sat there and had a laugh at the erosion hypothesis foolishness but hey maybe sometimes it's worth it to talk about the reality on the other side and do a bit of a deep dive and as i told him sometimes i'm a little worried about doing that because sometimes it can get really technical and really long and It might make the show too long. Um, It might be kind of hard to understand, might be kind of weird, but I hear him loud and clear. So I think with the rest of this, I'm going to attempt to do that. I am going to take us down the path of how we would date the Sphinx, how modern archaeology would do this. And by extension, this is the type of studies we do if we're going to date anything cultural from the last couple thousand years. So as I go through this, realize that wherever you are in the world, if we're trying to get a real date, this is how it's going to be largely done. So when we come back, the reality, which we so rarely get on this show Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the Filet-O-Fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Hello and welcome back to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast, episode 111. And I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, which I believe I didn't say last time, but it's kind of understood at this point. So we were talking about the mail that I get from my listeners and specifically one that I really appreciated about the Sphinx, about dating the Sphinx, you know, and how we would really do this. Now, the listener did at at first have some questions about erosion. Does modern archaeology use erosion as a dating method? And my answer would be mostly no. And what I mean by that and what we really have to realize when we're dating something like the Sphinx or anything in archeology span is we're gonna use everything we have, right? We're gonna use as many dating methods as possible. If we have carbon 14, we're gonna use it. If we have potassium argon, we're gonna use it. You know, If we have artifacts that date to a certain time, we're gonna use those. We use it all. And we hope that everything generally crosses at a certain date range. Which, in my experience, the huge percentage of that, it really does. And it's super satisfying when it happens. You know, you're like, hey, man, job well done. We're actually using science. We found some artifacts. We found some stuff we can date. And it all seems to be from a thousand years ago or whatever it may be. In the case of the Sphinx. All right. So what do I mean with erosion mostly now? What I mean is all those other things I listed like the types of artifacts you find in association with it, any carbon 14 dating, if you can do it. And there are other, other dating methods, methods too. They're all better than just trying to guess at erosion because there's so many factors of erosion. Erosion happens on a geological scale, right? Thousands upon thousands of years. You, with erosion, you're not going to get some date range of like, oh, plus or minus two years. You're not going to get that, right? It's thousands upon thousands of years. It depends on the formation of the stone itself. And again, I went over this last time, you know, that really just straight looking at erosion on something is is not a good way to go. It's better than nothing. So if we had no other dating method, but all we could do would be to look at the side of the Sphinx and how much it was eroded. I would be like, okay, right. Let's do it. And they were saying it took, you know, 10,000 years or something like that. And I'd be cool with that if we had nothing better, but we have a ton of stuff that's better to date that first we have, we have the context Right. This is where in time and space the Sphinx is and what it's related to. The Sphinx is obviously related to all that other stuff, all the the pyramids and, and the buildings right nearby on the Giza Plateau. And in those buildings and in the layers that relate to the Sphinx, we have artifacts from the time that the Sphinx is from. Right. Meaning like you can find bits of pottery, you can find broken tools, this kind of thing that all date to the old kingdom, to around, oh, you know, if you want to round it, around 2,500 BC, give or take, you know, is it 2,600 BC? Is it 2,400 BC? It's right in there. So four and a half thousand years ago. So we have really good, what I would call contextual data or cultural data, meaning that human beings made these tools, human beings made this pottery, and we can find it in association with the Sphinx, meaning related to the Sphinx, close by to the Sphinx. It just makes natural sense. But you could say, hey, you're just associating it. You're not dating the actual Sphinx itself. And that is true, right? But what you find is so much of archaeology works through association like that. And we feel very good about Making that kind of association, making that kind of leap, because everything is in that instance, it's sort of contained in the same place in space. So we really can get good dates. And as I talk about good dates. Realize that. We are almost never getting to the year, Okay, that's a common misnomer with dating, you know, the only time that you can possibly do that, well, there's two times, I mean, if you have tree ring dating that's perfect right on. But that's very rare. Or if you have some sort of written records that a human being wrote it and said, hey, this year this happened. But even that human beings lie. Damn them. And they're lying ways, but either lying or not, those are pretty damn good. But in the world of carbon 14 and these other what we'll call radiometric dating methods, They all have a range. And when we go into the deep dive on that, I'll I'll talk a little about that range. By range, I mean, oh, plus or minus 100 years or plus or minus 30 years, right? They're all going to have that range. We're not getting this to the year. But I am completely satisfied with how the Sphinx is dated. Now, if the context thing doesn't make 100% sense to you, think of it like this. A thousand years from now, you go to New York. And you're digging at the place where the World Trade Center once stood. And you find these two huge foundations. Of buildings that were once there, and even with all the cleanup, maybe you still find some debris there, you know, as they've as they covered it over and you can't date those foundations cuz they're just you know they're just made out of concrete let's say you have you can't find anything else you're gonna find a bunch of artifacts right there though that come from the late 1990s and maybe into 2000 or even 2001 right now you're not going to be able to date it perfectly but you're going to be like i find a lot of human material from like the 90s now sure you're going to find some a, a little bit of stuff from before, you know, if you dig deep enough, ooh, there's a bit of a train tunnel that was built in 1889 or something. But overall, you're going to find a pile of stuff from, you know, the couple decades before the building itself was built in the 70s, you know, in the 60s into the 70s. So you are just going to find a ton of artifacts from that and maybe a few more from afterwards. But you're going to find a bunch from a certain time period, right? So... That's how you're going to date that culturally. You're not dating the foundation of the Twin Towers specifically, right? But you're dating, you're using all the artifacts to give you a guess. And you're going to get a really good guess just based on the, the amount of artifacts there, right? That's sort of contextual, kind of cultural dating, using these artifacts. Now, yes, we can do that with the Sphinx. But guess what? We can do better. because The Sphinx was actually made with a bunch of mortar, especially on the inner parts of it to stick this stuff together. And inside the mortar and inside the voids and stuff where the construction workers were just filling stuff in, there are bits of broken pieces of pottery and bits of tools from the time, which, of course, all date to the old kingdom about 25 or sorry, 4500 years ago, 2500 B.C. They all did to that, but I can even do you one better. There were a couple bits of charcoal in it too. So we can carbon 14 date parts of the Sphinx. That's great because the charcoal was in the mortar and they even found little plant fragments and stuff too. So remember that carbon 14 can only be used on things that were once living, once organic, right? Organic matter. So we actually have that and they did do, they did run some of this stuff. They ran it for the Sphinx and they ran it for some of the stuff they found, like in some of the other pyramids in Giza, like Giza Plateau stuff. They ran a bunch of these carbon 14 dates. And initially they came off as uh, two to three hundred years too old. Now, let me stop right there and say, check this out. We're nowhere near that 10,000 year line. We're nowhere near that. Oh, the Sphinx is ancient. Look at the water erosion. Right. That is all completely out the window. Total BS. They are wrong. Right. Done. Now we're having the argument that real scientists actually have, which is like, hey, this is about 200 years too old. Like, I wonder why. Right. Of course, they the pseudo archaeology world will cherry pick this and go, archaeologists don't agree on age of Sphinx. Age of Sphinx, too old. But they'll never say by 200 years, not 10,000 years, right? So typical. So, what's the deal with this? You're two to 300 years old. I would have been fine with it. I'd just like, eh, two or 300 years old, no big deal. You know, there, there's just a little bit of incorrect dating. But there's an article from 2009. In the journal article, radiocarbon. Now, this is the one that takes the deep dive, you can tell by the title, into the Carbon 14 world. And I've done some of this. I've prepped samples and stuff, so I can actually hang with this. And the reason why you pay me the big bucks is so I can kind of translate this for you guys. So in the 2009 issue, and I will link this below in the comments, a group of scientists, they took those original dates that were two to three hundred years too old, and they ran them through... A program called OxCal, which I really like. I think it's the best one. And it's just this is a carbon 14, how you run your dates to to kind of narrow them to get the best you can. And they did a Bayesian analysis. Now, Bayesian analysis, it gets really technical, but basically, it's just where they can use certain facts that they know about that time period to narrow the date a little more. You're still gonna have a range, but they narrowed it some. It can be done based on the stratigraphy of where the carbon 14 samples were found and sort of so on and so forth. It's it's a way of narrowing your dates a bit. Now, why do you need to narrow your dates in the first place? It's because there's a thing called a calibration curve, which is when you get a carbon 14 date back, how it works is it's recording how much of the carbon-14 isotope has degraded away from when the thing was alive. And in a perfect world, you would just measure how much it's degraded, and you're like, oh, it's 2,156 years old. In a perfect world, that's true. But carbon-14 degrades. It's like the world that the carbon-14 is in, the the amount of carbon-14 in it varies a tiny bit over the years and decades and centuries, right? It varies a little. So when you date something, there's what's called a calibration curve. And what sucks is the curve is not completely nice and smooth. It's a little wiggly. So there are certain times where what that means is it's called an intercept. It's it's where that piece dates to. And if it dates to a really wiggly piece of the curve, it it gives you a more wide date. That's basically what happens. And there's certain time periods where this happens much more. I know this from the Maya world. I have some stuff that we did that dates around 250 B.C. And there's a bunch of wiggling there. And I'm like, damn it. So much wiggling. But there's other points in time. I think I dated something to about a thousand A.D., much smoother date, much more narrow. So. What the Bayesian modeling does is it takes out some of the wiggles. It's like your date corresponds to wiggle one, three, you know, one, three, six, nine, and twelve. And you're like, shit, you know. But then they can narrow it down and be like, hey, the date, it corresponds definitely to only wiggle one and three. You're like, nice. Right. So that's sort of evening out some of the some of the dithering and radiocarbon dating. That doesn't make radiocarbon dating bad. I love carbon 14 dating, right? You've heard me talk about it before here. It's great. And with Bayesian modeling, you can narrow it down that much more. So to only a portion, right, of the wiggly line. So where it was once plus or minus 100 years, now maybe it's only plus or minus 40 years. And so they did that. They modeled that with these dates. And that bumped the dates up just a little bit. The other thing that can often make radiocarbon dates or carbon fourteen dates date just a little too old is a version of what's called the old wood problem. Like, what if that wood that is dated is from a tree that was three hundred years old when it was cut down? You see what I'm saying? It might be a piece that dates to when the tree was new, not to when you actually used it. You, it's like. If the, day, if the tree was planted in 0 AD, chopped down in 300 AD, and that's when it was used, you might burn a piece of that and it'll give you a date of 0 AD. Does that make sense, you guys? You see how it gives you a little bit old? And that can be a function of some of this too. When you see dates that are a little too old, sometimes that can be true. We have this kind of unwritten rule in archaeology. If you have a choice for a carbon-14 date of wood – You want to try and find a little tiny little stick from the tree, not a huge part of the trunk, because that will get your date that much closer. So just kind of an interesting bit there. So ultimately, with the narrowing of the carbon 14 dates from plant material found in the sphinx itself, in the mortar, you get dates that go. I wrote them down just for laughs. They narrowed it to between. 2558 and 2361 B.C. That is the two sigma. That means that that is the 95 percent probability, which is really, really high. And that is right in. Khafre's reign is from 2558 to 2532. So it's it's right in there, you guys. And now we can argue was the Sphinx made during Khafre's reign slightly before, slightly after. Sure, we can have those arguments all day. Right. What does the Sphinx ultimately mean? How does it relate to Giza? We can we can go to town on all that. But in terms of the date of the Sphinx itself, it is right in Fourth Dynasty, Old Kingdom, case closed. When we return, what to do with the dating of the Sphinx? Hello and welcome back to episode 111 of the Pseudoarchaeology Podcast, and I am still still your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella. And we were talking about the dating of the Sphinx and how it's sort of a case closed situation. And I will say in all this, again, I, I've really enjoyed the, the feedback that I've got, and I will try and incorporate your guys' feedback into later episodes and this kind of thing. If you have questions, if I can incorporate them smoothly, like I like I have here. So ultimately, you know, One thing that bums me out about the whole Sphinx thing is. I had to Google and dig to find that 2009 radiocarbon article that basically answers everything, you know. And. If you're just a regular everyday person, you're not going to know how to find that. Like I Googled Sphinx dates, I think, and. Every BS pseudo-archaeology thing came up, you guys. You couldn't even find that radiocarbon article. You know, it's the Sphinx dating is buried in media BS hype. It's like the first thing that comes up is, you know, I think it was like a 1999 NBC article or something. It was like Sphinx dates. Who knows? Right. The media just trying to make some dumb story out of it. And it's such a bummer. Right. Because normal people you can't find the actual like story on this. I find this so often in archaeology because I think most of us we just want to know the re- the real stuff. We want to know the age of the Sphinx. we want to know that like oh actually there were a couple bits of charcoal inside the mortar of the Sphinx they were able to date it case closed you know but you never hear it because the stupid point counterpoint never-ending fake debate, you know, continues. Oh, is it 10,000 years old? No, it's not. We're done. We're done. Right. So I I see that, you know, in Googling now, yes, I, I was able to find the radiocarbon article, but I shouldn't have to. I, we should all be able to find that. We shouldn't Google something simple like that and then have to see 20 BS articles that are like all wrong, all angle you to the wrong thing. Honestly, same thing happens for the guitar tone with thing, too. You find a bunch of BS stuff, but then you have to kind of dig a little deeper and then you find the real science. So I blame the media for that. You know, I blame this never ending need for this point counterpoint. Ooh, we don't know who's really right. Yes, we do. You know, like data is a real thing. The other thing, I was looking up some dating methods in general to see, like, I wanted to see if there was anything the like erosion hypothesis or, or any sort of backdoor way I could deal with it like I could go oh we could talk about the erosion hypothesis in terms of this kind of dating or something and I couldn't really find anything because of course the short answer is you know can you date stone no unless you're doing something like potassium argon or argon argon dating and that's basically lava flows and that's age of dinosaurs stuff You know, when you're doing something like that, you're dating something that's a hundred million years old and you go like plus or minus one hundred thousand years. That kind of dating is pointless for anything dealing with modern humans in any way. Like I've never used uh, potassium argon or argon argon dating. We just wouldn't do it. But I've used carbon 14 dozens of times. So. In looking that up, I I think I I just sort of typed in like modern dating methods or modern archaeology dating methods. The, the hit that comes up the most is a book that's called Mythology of Modern Dating Methods, published by, wait for it, the Institute for Creation Research. <sighs> Although, if you have an institute with an oxymoron in its title, that can be kind of cool. But for those of you who don't know, the Institute of Creation Research, this is going to be just a BS pseudoscience book on why dating methods don't work because you've got to have a six thousand year old world. Yep. Welcome to my life. So that's the kind of stuff that kills me, you know, and if you're just a person looking up, you just you're just curious about dating methods. You look up like modern dating methods and that's the first hit a book. I think it was from like 1999 or something, too. Uh, by the Institute for Creation Research on why dating methods don't work. When I look at this stuff and it it's a very instructive educational experience for me to just google this stuff like anyone else would, I'm bummed out much more than not by the first 10 hits, you know? It's really unfortunate that that kind of stuff comes up because it just colors the debate before you even start, which is not even a debate at all. You know, the idea that modern dating methods somehow don't work is ludicrous. They work great. But if we're adults, you know, we can talk about things like, well, modern dating methods have a factor of plus or minus 50 years or 100 years or 10 years, depending like carbon 14 dating. Honestly, the plus or minus aspect tends to increase as we get further back in the past and carbon 14 dating. Once you get to about 70,000 years Old or so it will no longer work there's too little carbon 14 left to measure accurately and as i said there's aspects to the calibration curve where it gets a little more wiggly it'll give you a slightly larger plus or minus date but we're working on it and i have huge respect for like the authors of that 2009 radiocarbon paper right where they we're like, you know what? We're going to take the data and we're going to try and make it better. They had no secret agenda to make it fit. They simply used Bayesian modeling in order to narrow the dates. That's it. And it happened to fall in their favor on that one. You know, we always want to keep an open mind in science, which we totally do. If they used the Bayesian modeling and it made it more towards the 300 years too old, we would then start to look for reasons why it's 300 years too old. We go, ooh, maybe this idea of Khafre's reign being here, maybe it was a little bit earlier. Ooh, maybe the Sphinx actually does go towards Khufu, the earlier pharaoh. You know, we we would try and explain these things rationally and using, wait for it, common sense. And with that, I appreciate you guys a lot, my friends. Thanks for all of it, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time.